Hey, Richard Gottlieb. Chris Bird. How you doing? I'm doing great, Chris. We've got another guest from the United Kingdom today. And I think we're going to have to head over there and, and meet all these great people in person. We have Billy Langsworthy, who is the founder of Mojo Nation. And you are listening to the Playground Podcast, which is brought to you by Global Toy Experts, the toy guy and marketing and media agency, Chizcom. And Billy Langsworthy, you have created a site that is really inspiring. It's all about creativity. It's really a great read. It's something, if you don't know this in the U.S., you should be definitely checking it out. How did all of this come about? First of all, welcome. And how did all of this come about? No, thank you so much for having me. Um, so, yeah, so Mojo Nation is a, an online platform devoted to the design and the inventor space within the toy and games industry. Where it all came from is uh, back in the day, I used to work for Toy News magazine, which was a trade mag in the, in the UK. And, and before that, I was in video games, working on a trade mag in, in the video game space. And in video games, I was sort of very used to, you know, seeing developers and designers working on, on video games, and they were very much pushed out. The, the creatives were front and center of stuff in that world. And then when I moved on to Toy News and, and, and started working in toys, it was a bit of a, a culture shock. I couldn't, I couldn't find where the designers were, where the inventors were. The magazine wasn't strictly, you know, about the, the design process or the creative process. Every time I sort of bump into an inventor, I might meet the inventor of Jenga at a show and immediately, you know, let's sit down and do an interview. And, and my sales team at the time would say, you know, inventors don't book the ads. Let's not let's not focus too much too much on those guys. And then what we ended up doing uh, was we did a we did a feature on an inventor that, that went quite well with the audience online. And so we started doing an event called the Inventors Workshop which was aimed at the public. And it was basically a very small event in the UK. And the idea was if you're a teacher or a limo driver or anyone who's got an idea for a great toy or game, you could come along, learn about the industry, and then pitch your idea to some, some companies that were attending. Uh, and it went really well. And we did that for a few years. And the interesting thing was by the third year that we were doing that, we started getting proper full-time professional toy inventors uh, coming to that event. And I would say to those guys, you know, why are you sort of politely, I'd say, why are you bothering with this? You know, surely you've got your own events that are tailored to the professional pool in the UK. Um, and they all said that in the UK, there wasn't anything going on of, of that ilk. So I sort of sat down, had some ideas about what what eventually, you know, my generation became, went to the publisher of, of the magazine at the time and pitched it to them. Uh, they very politely said, no way, not for them. Didn't, see, didn't, didn't appeal in the slightest. And I'd already told too many inventors that I was, I was going to do this thing. Um, and so in a, in a sort of act of saving face, I, uh, <laughs> I, I left the magazine and, and sort of started up Mojo. Um, it's myself and a guy called Adam Butler who, who run it. Uh, it's still a very small team. That's still just us. And yeah, and that's, that's the idea. But, you know, the website is there to cover inventors' stories, in-house designers' stories at toy companies, find out the creative process behind how these great products are coming to be. Um, and then we also run events in the UK. So we, we do a big, uh, big event called the Play Creators Festival. And that's made up of a conference all about toy and game design. We do a, an award. When does that, when does that take place? Uh, every September. So the first week in September, normally. Um, this year, it's going to be virtual. Um, and it was virtual last year for obvious reasons. And if somebody wants to attend, is there a website they can go to yeah. register? Can you give Absolutely. it to me? Yeah, if they go to um, playcreatorsfestival.com, it's there. Or if you go to mojo-nation.com, uh, there'll be there'll be links there to send them send them in that direction too. It's a conference. We do an awards for, for the designers and inventors. And then we have a big pitching event where we have normally around 30 companies. 
Um, they provide wish lists and then designers and inventors, both professionals all the way to amateurs, can book a ticket and come along and pitch their ideas and hopefully get them get them licensed. I think toy inventors are kind of pure inventors in a way. And I think in many ways, and, and you kind of inferred this, that they don't get not the respect, but the, the nurturance from the industry that yeah. is really due them because they are so important. So I, I really compliment you on doing your part. No, thank you for that. Yeah, and that, that's what we found, whether it's the retail focus or, you know, I've been at events before where I've, uh, I was at a licensing event once where I was sat on a table with the inventor of a product that won an award and they didn't go up. They were sat there, uh, you know, very polite and they weren't, they, you know, they weren't upset about it, but there was, there was no invite for them to join the team. And it's, yeah, things like that is what, is what spurred us to create Mojo. One of my personal hobby horses is that I don't think the industry does recognize the inventors, the packaging designers, the people who are at the heart of creating that child's experience. At the end of the day, you can have all the distribution and marketing and all of that, but if you don't reach a child and make them go, wow, I need that, you're not really going to have uh, a toy <laughs> or a toy industry. Absolutely. I always think that some of the stories behind these products, and, and, and you guys are, are obviously exploring it as well with, with what you do, there's a general interest there. I think that's what we're finding. There are certainly some interviews and stuff we've done on the site where the audience is far beyond the industry. You see it on you know, Netflix series and other TV companies are starting to do shows based around toys and the stories behind toys. And I think it's the same in, in all industries. I think the, the sort of the creative side of how things are coming together and, and the general awareness and interest in design is starting to, be, starting to bubble to the surface now. As a quick example, when we first launched, it was very much me talking to people that I knew finding out about what they did, how we could get them on the site. And now we've got PRs and marketing teams who talk to us wanting to put that in their strategy. Uh, we've got this anniversary coming up and we'd love to talk to the designer and make sure they're part of it. So so it is, it is taken seriously by, by companies now, I think, or it's getting there. Billy, we hear the term designer used. We hear the term inventor used. They're, they're not the same thing. Can, can you define the two for us and the differences? I think some of it is lifestyle as well. I think inventing is a bit like what you said earlier. It's sitting down, creating something new. It's pitching. It's it's riskier than than a designer career because you're you know you're you're living off of your royalties. And, and so that, that I think it's a lot of a lot to do with lifestyle. I think designer, for me anyway, is far more in tune to sort of in house, um, you know, working on different brands. Um, there's there's a bit more I, I suppose structure to the to, to the whole design process. I think obviously designers can invent and inventors can design. And we see it all the time where successful in-house designers then at some point leave a company, set up their own invention studio and absolutely succeed in that space. But I think it's very much a lifestyle thing. I think the, you know, and, and in a way it's taught when we, when we talk to educators about toy design courses versus toy invention courses, you know, there's a really well-respected toy invention program at Shenkar in Israel that's, that's run in part by Spinmaster. And they're very keen on the fact that that is not a design course. That is not a toy design course. They are teaching a way of life. They're teaching a, you know, a, how to be an inventor and that culture and that, that way of pitching, inventing, pitching again, uh, having loads and loads and loads of ideas and knowing that 80%, 90% of them are going to not go anywhere and not get picked up. Hey, Billy, what I, what I like about that too is it's, it takes toy inventing from being a vocation 
to being our profession. And, and so I hadn't heard about that program in Israel. What was the name of the university again? Uh, Shenkar. Um, it's run by uh, Tao Shriba. Um, they've actually expanded it. So now they've, they've done one in uh, Israel, then it moved to Canada. Um, they're launching this year, they're launching one in Japan and one in London. And it's incredible. I mean, the, the, the course in Israel has really helped to cultivate a properly thriving invention scene in Israel um, that I think Tao and the Spin Master team and, and Shenkar deserve a lot of credit for that. It's interesting because there are a lot of really cool ideas that are coming out of Israel. And I kind of know now why, and in especially in recent years. And it's not just dimensional toys. It's also technology, optical technology, audio technologies. They're coming out of Israel. I think the whole education thing is really important because I think students on design courses and invention courses have a really good opportunity to innovate in toys because if you look at some of the invention summits that the toy companies host you know they will they will sit there and they will tell a, a bunch of the world's top toy and game inventors we're looking for great new compound based play so go out find chemists find scientists look in other industries see what's happening see if there's things you can take into into our industry and actually if you're a student on a course on a design course or an invention course if your university also has a science program and you've got chemistry students you know across the campus it's a really exciting time i think if, if for a student to be able to say well you know what i'm on a toy design course or a design course i can partner up with a friend who works in chemistry i live with someone who's on a business studies course you've got you've got everyone there who if you bring those talents together you could create a really great new product and then pitch it to the toy companies who are always open to to seeing ideas you raised two questions for me the first is you've talked to a lot of inventors and designers over your career what are the common denominators of all of these individuals that that drive them into this business yeah, I think there's a few things. I think um, a sort of curi a natural curiosity, I think, is key. I think where they get their ideas comes from all over the place. Um, I remember I interviewed a guy called um, Gary Piper, who's a brilliant, uh, a brilliant toy and game inventor. He created a game called Who's the Dude, which is basically charades involving a blow-up doll. And he saw that because he saw a hen night. He saw a a, um, a sort of hen party. I don't know. Is it called hen party in the States? Like a girl's night out. And they saw them carrying a, a blow up doll. And, and he looked at that and thought, you know, how, how can I bring that into a There must be a game involving that sort of thing. So there's that natural curiosity of looking at the world and immediately seeing, you know, what is the playful spin? How can I, where, is there a game in that? Is there a toy in that? Is there a character in that? I think the big thing that separates the pros from sort of amateurs who are trying to crack it or, or trying to do it is having loads and loads and loads of ideas and not not being precious about them and not having too much ego in them as well. I think I think the thing we see quite a lot, and it's totally understandable from amateurs sometimes, is we'll get someone come up to us and they'll say, I've been in an estate agent for years. I've got this great game. It's all about the world of being an estate agent. And it's based on snakes and ladders. It's their only game. And they might be a bit needly if, if you criticize it and that's it. That's their one game. They've had it for years and they're very much wed to it. Whereas, you know, the professionals know that they have hundreds of ideas. They know they've got loads of people to show it to. It's a numbers game. And so they're always pitching, always, always maintaining these relationships. I think that's the big difference. It's about having loads and loads and loads of ideas. And that's what we say to students and also to anyone that comes to our event who's, who's an amateur. We try and say to them, look, we know you, you love this idea and this is what you want to show and it's great. But just force yourself to have two or three more because 
nine times out of 10, it's that third idea or second idea that they wasn't sort of in, madly in love with that, that actually could have the potential. You make me think of a friend of mine, uh, Ruben Klamer, who's the famous inventor of the game of life and a number of other things. And I was visiting Ruben uh, and he took me to his uh, warehouse and he called it the warehouse of broken dreams because in it were literally hundreds of prototypes of toys that he had invented that that never made it. And it really came across to me that this man who was so successful, that just as you were saying, he had to generate a lot, a lot of ideas and, and able just to find a few that could be monetized. You know, I remember speaking to, uh, we interviewed Richard Levy about um, right. you know, obviously Kirby being a huge... And I'm always amazed that you think, is he going to dwell on that? Is it going to be this huge thing for him? And it seems like it was on to the next one. You know, it was that was the idea and I'm on to the next idea. And, and, you know, it's a numbers game, loads and loads of ideas. And I think that's the that's the key. The second issue you really raise for me is the importance of the inventor community to the toy companies as a resource. And I talk to a lot of inventors and they are running around a toy fair when we had toy fairs. They will be again saying, well, my goal is to first pay for my trip <laughs> by selling something and then hopefully to make a little bit more. Can you comment a little bit about, from your perspective, how the manufacturers work with toy inventors and how much they depend on them? I think it's huge. And I know I would say that based on based on what I'm doing, but I think you know the, the the big guys, you know the big companies. They've all got it. They've got they've got inventor relations teams. They've got inventor relations execs. They might use external inventor relations help. Um, so they've recognised that that there is that there is a huge um, value in in connecting with these guys, treating them fairly, using their ideas, and being good to them. So they come back and, and show their best stuff to them. And I think even even the medium sized companies now and and even smaller companies, I think it's I actually think the the companies that are either anti-inventor or totally against it are are in the minority now and I, I think the in terms of the industry I think I think we're we're getting better at celebrating the fact that you know as an industry we're we're very inventor friendly compared to other industries and I think actually the access is another thing that I think is is really smart the fact that you know our event uh, the mojo event that we run is four years old four or five years old but at our event you know we've had recent graduates we've had members of the public have great ideas and they have been able to sit down in front of the key decision maker of inventor relations at Hasbro or Mattel or Spinmaster, which is, is is an amazing thing when you think about it. And the fact that they are very, it's not lip service. It's not, they're not doing it for a PR and to look like they care about ideas. They genuinely want to find great stuff. By and large, they're not sort of purely limiting themselves to the big invention houses. They obviously will work with those guys who are brilliant at what they do and, and have been doing it for years. But they're also very much open to seeing a new graduate, graduate or seeing a new inventor or seeing a creative from another industry that might have an idea for a toy or game. So I think it's I think it's that thing that also should be celebrated. I think they're 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 really open as an industry. We're getting better at, at recognizing the value that they bring to the industry and and the amount of stuff that you see on shelves and at toy fairs that wouldn't just wouldn't exist without them. Billy, one of the most important things an inventor has to do is protect their intellectual property. I wonder sometimes if they are educated, the average inventor is educated enough in that area, uh, realizes that they have to invest. What do you find? It's a really, really interesting question. And it's it's a difficult, well, what, what I would say, especially with new inventors that we speak to, 
you get a real mix. So you get, and it sounds awful, but you get some that are aware of that, but go to the extreme. In the end, it's like padlocking a dustbin. It's, you know, they're, they're, they've not shown anyone their idea. They've not done enough research. They think it's great from the word go. And then they spend crazy money and you sort of think, oh, you know, that's, that's already out there or it's not trendy enough. So you hear horror stories where some new designers take it to the extreme. And obviously there's a certain areas. So board games, for example, there's certain things where actually you can't, you, there's not much in the way of protection. You have to meet with people you trust. Yes, you might have an NDA saying, you know, you're not going to obviously share stuff and they won't share stuff. You know, there are plenty of games actually where if, if it becomes more valuable to have a component that you can protect. So, you know, these games where there might be a physical mechanism, those sort of things you can protect. And I think that's that's an important thing because, you know, some companies really value being able to protect that sort of game. And we know some companies will, will say no to certain games because they'll say, we love the game, but we know that if we put that out, it can get copied to bits. And actually, there's nothing we can do about it because we can't protect what you've got. On the toy design side, especially if you've got a really unique novel mechanism and stuff like that, it, it does pay off to, to look after it or to at least be speaking to companies about how to protect it. You know, that's the other thing. It's, you know, if you think you've got something really special, have those chats, see if there's if there's interest in there and there's a, an appetite for it. And then really explore some of those things because that's the that's the big thing we worry about is when we see people spend a lot of money and we see it quite a lot on ideas and protecting ideas when you know whether it can go anywhere or whether they've done the, the necessary research to know whether there's a place for it. I think those words, all the kids in the neighborhood love it, are chilling words. Because yeah, yeah, it's that. It's it's the next monopoly, and my friends and family love it. They're the uh, they're the nightmarish. Uh, right. I, I always joke, your grandmother loves everything you do. So, but <laughs> at, at at the same time. You have the guys who founded Whammo who would go out and make something in their shed, basically, and then take it down to the beach. And if the kids liked it, they went and made it. So there was a certain level of risk that is pretty scary to a lot of people today. It depends on what type of toy it is, I guess. And you also see situations as well where, I'll give you an example. We had uh, a guy a couple of years ago come to our event and he was a design teacher at a secondary school in the UK and he'd set a sort of card game brief and six of his students had created a card game and it was called Active Snap. And it was basically Snap with a sort of twist where actually there's lots of exercise and it's this really fun, frantic game. And um, he came to our event, I had a chat with him, really nice guy. And again, he was totally realistic about it. He said, you know, this has come from my six students. They're all, you know, 14, 15 years old. They don't know anything about the, the, the actual ins and outs of the industry. They think this is great. He came to the event, they pitched it, they pitched it to uh, Tomi, a guy called Al, a brilliant guy called Alpesh Patel, who, who looks after their, their toy design. Uh, he loved it. He loved the teaching side of it. He sort of, it, the teacher reminded him of his own teacher who got him into design. They signed the deal and Active Snap is now out uh, on shelves through Tomi, a huge, you know, big company like that. I've given up trying to guess when we speak to new designers <laughs> where it's going to fall down because you just don't, you just don't know sometimes. And I've actually seen ideas that I think, well, I don't think that they're going to come to the event and it might not, might not go well, or I'm interested to see how it goes and they'll get a deal. And I've seen stuff that I think, you know, I'd buy five of them right now if, if, if you'd let me. And they walk back and they, they've still got it. And no, you know, no one wanted. So it's, it's a really, tri you know, it's tricky for me. If it's tricky for me to gauge, you can imagine being an inventor or even being an inventor relations person, trying to sort of place those bets and work out, you know, which is going gonna, is gonna to absolutely nail it. It's a very, very difficult thing to do. I, I've heard a sentence a lot in my years in the toy industry is that people comment on things and it's this, stranger things have worked. 
<laughs> which I've heard, which I've heard often. You are working with inventors and designers and people who are thinking down the road from where we are today. Are you seeing, as you talk to them, emerging trends, both in what companies are looking for and in what inventors are coming up with? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. So the way the way the, this part of the industry works, in some way, you know, all the companies will have their own wish lists, which, to a degree, will will either signal where they're thinking, you know, great stuff can come from, or it will be new brands they're working with that they want to find innovation in. And some inventors will design and invent two wish lists. Other inventors are very much of the opinion, if they knew what they wanted, they'd be doing it. I'm gonna I'm gonna read the wish list and I'm gonna basically go off piece and uh, and see what happens. In terms of sort of trends and where it's going, you know, I think they're always looking at what's popular. So, you know, as a very, and everyone's already spoken about this, but if you look at something like TikTok and what's making that platform popular and the music and the, and the recording and personalization, all that sort of stuff, there are going to be loads of inventors who look at stuff like that and think, well, how can I translate what people are loving about a trend like that into a card game, for example? Do, do people love the dancing element? Do people love the recording element, you know, and they, and they try and dig into to trends and work stuff like like that out. I also think there's a wider piece in terms of just how things are being shown at the moment and, and how it's changing. So in terms of everything being virtual at the moment and how people pitch and, and how ideas are shown, I think that's an interesting thing that will will change and, and remain to an extent in terms of how inventor relations people are seeing ideas. And one component to that, which, again, I can't claim is necessarily my idea, because, I, again, Gary Piper, the, the guy I mentioned earlier, he, he mentioned it in an interview uh, last year. But obviously, so much of how inventors pitch is, is wrapped up in sizzle videos. Digitally, there's a risk that, you know, do these sizzle, video, sizzle videos become uh, snackable for inventor relations people? Are they, you know, if, you're, if I'm an inventor relations person, I'm seeing 30 inventors and I'm just whizzing through lots of sizzles. Is that a fundamentally different way of seeing ideas than if I was sat opposite in a room, opposite an inventor, they show me a sizzle, but then I also have the prototype and I have the general vibe of being in a room with a creative person and that that pitch that you can do face-to-face. It's a fundamentally different experience and some categories are going to be able to be pitched easier virtually than other categories. So I think in terms of uh, looking forward, I think that's, an in, that's a really interesting area that inventors are going to have to grapple with and come to terms with um, as well as obviously the, the trend hunting part of it. You publish a list called the Mojo Nation uh, 100. And can you tell us what that is all about, what the criteria are? A few years ago, again, when we were, when we were trying to work out more ways that we can celebrate this community, um, we realized that in other industries, these sort of top 100 books are, are all the rage and people are doing, you know, 30 under 30s and, and all that sort of stuff. Um, but there wasn't one for the people working in the design and invention side of toys and games. So we launched it. It's been going really well. So the, the, the process basically is anyone can nominate anyone. You can nominate yourself. There are categories like Rising Star. There's a category devoted to in-house R&D teams. There's a category devoted to external invention studios and one-man band inventors. So we run the whole the whole um, sort of industry. It's, it's um, inventors as well as in-house designers. Um, and it's reflective of the last year. So we ask people, it's not a sort of hall of fame. It's very much, um, you know, what have you licensed over the past 12 months that you're really proud of? And what's great about it and what we found is really nice is that it's, you know, it, people really enjoy celebrating the achievements of their invention partners. So all the big toy companies are very generous in terms of nominating their partners and saying this actually came from him. And it's great. And it's great for me because there's, there's so much stuff every year when we do that book where I'm like, oh, you know, I've, I've seen the release. I've seen it come out. I've seen the ad. 
and I never realized that came from from this inventor or you know it's a re- it's a really eye opening experience is it international yeah totally international so we had some uh, inventors from Israel in there this year um all over the place yeah our website is uh, www.mojo-nation.com so if people are interested in in sort of hearing the stories of inventors and reading our interviews we do a weekly newsletter so they can go there and they can and sign up and we that goes out once a week on a wednesday um and then i'm always you know i'm very uh, open to chatting to inventors i spend a lot of time doing that so you know it, via email if people wanted to reach out i'm at um, billy at mojo-nation.com um, and yeah, I'd, I'd welcome anyone who's interested in, in either, you know, wanting to pitch and wanting advice or wanting to find out about our pitching events. That would be great. But also if you're working at a toy company and you think, you know what, this my head of design is superb or this in-house inventor is great and we've never actually pushed them out for, for you know, uh, credit or to, be, to talk about their process, we would absolutely love. We always welcome people reaching out and, 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 and telling us who we should be speaking to. So, Billy, we're going to ask you the question we ask each of our guests here on the Playground podcast. Tell us a secret. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And I thought about, you know, I'd, I'd love to give you a, a proper bone shaking secret. <laughs> that I'm suddenly five guys in, in suits knock on my door and I'm, I'm led away. But um, it's what I would tell you. And it's, it's, it's far more mundane than it's far more mundane than that. But I suppose. One thing that we've always done that ne- we've never shouted about involves licensing and, and brands. So what we what, what started to happen when we launched is we would have brand owners, because while I was at Toy News, I also looked after licensing.biz, which was a trade site for the licensing industry. We started getting brand owners coming to us saying, you know, how do we work with inventors? We, you know, we've, we've done a few toys and games. We, is there a way we can work directly with inventors? Because at the moment, we would sign a master toy deal or we'd partner with a toy company we then come up with great toys, but we've got no idea whether they've worked with inventors, whether it's come in-house. We love the love the sound of this community. How can we engage? So one thing we do throughout the year, and like I say, we don't normally um, you know, publicize it, is we work with brands who are looking to engage with inventors on projects. We've done that for the first one we did. It was with a company called Magic Light Pictures, who run uh, the Gruffalo, which is a brand. I, I don't know how big it is in the US, but in the UK, it's, it's quite big. And it was about games. They wanted to find Gruffalo games. So we did an event. We brought them loads of inventors. We actually took the inventors on a Gruffalo. There's a, there's a Gruffalo theme park in the UK. So we had a very surreal image of 30 adult inventors on a, on a Gruffalo log flume. Um, lots of bewildered kids having to, having to wait their turn, thinking, what's going on? <laughs> um, and, and we did that. And, and there's actually product. There's a, there's a Gruffalo games bundle that came out from that. We've done it for Rubik's. Um, and our most recent one last year, it, it all, all was virtual, but we worked with Disney, where um, Disney wanted to find some great new board game ideas from uh, for some of their brands. So that was something we do that is uh, is sort of under under the radar, but we always welcome that sort of stuff. And it actually led to us launching a brand new site, which only launched a couple of weeks ago, uh, called Brands Untapped. Um, and the, the focus of Brands Untapped is basically in the same way that we celebrate designers and creators working in the toy and game space, Brands Untapped celebrates designers and creators working on licensed products. And that can be anything from uh, a fashion collection based on The Lion King to through to a live show based on Shaun the Sheep, right the way through to this morning I interviewed two flavor gurus at Ben & Jerry's about how they created their Netflix flavors. And sometimes in in a press release, you don't really hear the creative story about you know, how did this Adidas Lego sneaker 
you know come to be and 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 we're telling those stories so um so that's why that's my sort of least scandalous secret but that is my secret it's it's a, it's a wonderful secret it sounds like you are definitely one of the guys to know in this business we're so happy that we know you billy langsworthy co-founder of mojo nation thank you so much for spending the time with us today thank you thank you guys i really appreciate it this is the playground podcast and we'll be right back with the end cap and now we come to the part of the show that we call the end cap, where Richard and I talk about topics that are top of mind and that people are buzzing about and probably nothing being more buzzed about right now than influencers and especially TikTok. And we got a uh, pretty interesting press release this week, Richard, huh? We did. The title is Nerf Chief TikTok Officer. That's harder to say than you think. <laughs> And it, it's basically uh, looking for somebody 18 years old or older who will spend three months really promoting Nerf through TikTok. TikTok is becoming a, a place for social commerce. It's becoming not just important as a place to promote products, but to sell them. Chris, what do you think of uh, Chief TikTok Officer? Well, I actually think it's a very clever idea because for 30 grand, Hasbro is buying into somebody who probably has a lot of followers, who's going to be creative, who they can promote. And I think it's probably going to be very cost effective and probably very compelling, given given all the crazy stuff they've done with Nerf over the years. And the reason being that this is where young people are consuming media. They're not watching linear TV. They're not watching cable. They're watching YouTube and they're watching TikTok and this is the way that they want to engage with brands. Certainly as a standalone, uncrowded channel, I think it's going to do very, very well because there is such a big fan base of Nerf out there. I think there's a bigger issue here. Advertising is really going to the molecular level in terms <laughs> of how we are experiencing it. You know, uh, there was a time before radio and television where people didn't uh, go to the theater and get an advertisement every 10 or 15 minutes during the show. You know, they just went and enjoyed the show. And then we got radio and television and we got used to, or did we really get used to having advertisements uh, interrupt our shows every 15 minutes. And now it seems that the advertising has actually permeated the show and that entertainment is a consumption experience. Absolutely, and the advertisement is the show, and it's content around brands and toys, especially in, in this case. It's one that Nerf fans will be eager to engage in because it's a way of staying aligned with the brand. The bigger issue is how are toy companies using TikTok, and you can't just tick the box and says, oh, I've got an influencer campaign. I've paid a TikTok celebrity X amount of dollars. You have to do your homework and be as granular as you would be if you were researching where to put a traditional linear ad. You have to know the audience. You have to know the followers. You have to know what else this person is doing. I've seen recent TikTok channels that are nothing but advertising, or at least it seems to me that everything is a paid promotion. And at a certain point, you're going to lose your audience. If all you see is advertising, how do you know your advertisements are going to pop? I think there's also um, a kind of a societal question, just to kind of think big for a second here, and not, not whether it's right or wrong to immerse 
a population in almost a continuous stream of advertising. But the question becomes, as you just said, at at what point do those who consume begin to just want to have an opportunity to not be sold to? Well, we've talked about that with some of our guests on the show here, and we've talked about how kids are very sensitive to being advertised to. And so they want something that's authentic and entertaining. And the other thing about TikTok and Instagram and all of this stuff is the audience is self-selecting. So it's not like you're watching TV and they say, we'll be right back after these messages. And (laughs) so the audience is actually seeking out and hopefully staying engaged with it. So it's a very different dynamic than traditional advertising, but you still need the strategy and the marketing plan and the ability to measure the effectiveness of your programs. Chris, we know a lot of people are, are, are watching TikTok. And if you're going to be spending time watching TikTok, you're not watching linear television. You're, you're not even watching Netflix. You're, you're absorbed in these kind of influencer-based shows. So what's the age break line, do you think, in this? Are people over 50 still watching a lot of linear TV? Uh, what, what's the age break point? for this thing? Well, cable news and and local and network news is really concentrated at the 55 and up ages. But I think for younger people, they're getting information mostly online, mostly through mobile. TikTok is definitely snackable. It's different than something like a Netflix series or something that you tune into and binge watch or a movie. It's one component in somebody's watching habits. I don't think it's necessarily taking away from other types of streaming. It's just an add-on in many cases. So in this day and age, figuring out where to advertise and how to effectively advertise is a real challenge. This seems like it's far more complicated than the days of, well, okay, I'll buy television ad advertising time. Right, because we're very focused on content. We're very focused on brand engagement. We don't seem to be as anxious about advertising to children as we used to be because they are being engaged in entertainment. I don't know where Peggy Charon is right now. It's very much a changed marketplace out there in terms of media consumption. As I said, the audience is self-selecting. There doesn't seem to be the kind of reticence of advertising to children that Peggy Charon railed against in the 60s and 70s with action for children's television and got related TV commercials removed from TV shows. We're seeing a little bit of that now with YouTube, where you can only target contextual advertising to kids not based on their browsing history. But at the same time, we live in a consumerist society. So brands are entertainment, they're engagement, and we have people like the Kardashians and all of these influencers and even little Ryan to do that because people want to be like their stars and their stars are playing with and hawking toys. Well, Chris, it's a, it's a brave new world out there. And, and I'm going to, when I'm finished with this uh, little podcast, I'm, I'm going to go watch TikTok for a while. Oh, well that that's good. And as you watch TikTok, think about how you can strategically position the playground podcast. So more people want to listen to us and we're very glad you are listening to us. This is the playground podcast with me, Chris Byrne my co-host and cohort, Richard Gottlieb. We are brought to you by Global Toy Experts, thetoyguy.com, marketing and media agency, Chizcom, and strategic advertising agency, Precise.tv. Be sure to check out all of our other episodes at theplaygroundpodcast.com. 
and we will see you next time.